Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, exploring 15,000 years of urban life and death with archaeologist Brenna Hassett and her new book, Built on Bones. Brenna Hassett is an archaeologist who specialises in using clues from the human skeleton to understand how people lived and died in the past. She has worked on excavation sites all over the world, including Roman period burials near the Giza pyramids, remote Greek islands, a Buddhist monastery in northern Thailand, and the famous central Anatolian site of Chatelhoyuk. Brenna is one quarter of the Trowel Blazers Project, an outreach, advocacy and academic effort to celebrate women's contributions to archaeology. And Brenna is the author of Built on Bones, 15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death, which we're going to be talking about today. Brenna, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. So tell me what the idea is behind Built on Bones. Well, the idea is basically that um, we are a very strange animal. We are a weird, weird species who seems to have taken our evolution in our own hands. We've started building up our own ecological niche and that the one that we've built for ourselves most recently is cities. Uh, I think 2030 it's estimated that 60% of the human species will be living in cities. We will be 60% urban. So uh, you know it's a strange thing but we seem to have built ourselves a new ecological niche and now we've got to sort of figure out what that actually means for us as a species. What, it, what has it done to us? And of course my interest is dead people. That may not sound totally logical at sort of first glance, but I'm a bioarchaeologist. I actually specialize in dead people's teeth, which is a real thing that you can do, uh, you know, if you don't go to school properly and get a better job. But um, as a bioarchaeologist, I'm really interested in the stories that sort of bones, teeth, the human skeleton, the human remains that we leave behind can tell us about the past. So the book is kind of a weird product of my ongoing obsession with dead people and some of the big questions about um, why are we like this? And teeth. Teeth are like trees in that they have rings that you can tell things from. They're amazing. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Um, So a lot of people are not as fascinated by teeth as really they should be. Everyone should be so interested in teeth. And that's not just because I have a PhD in it. It is possibly just because I have a PhD in it. But um, teeth are fossils. Teeth form once. If you think about your teeth and your bones, your bones, if you break an arm, what happens? You know, it's sort of, okay, as long as you get it back in more or less the right place, you wrap it up tight for a bit. Slowly, the cells will sort of pick up and it will knit back together. That's because all of the stuff in your bones is sort of constantly renewing, constantly rebuilding. There's not a bone in your body that's really older than about 11 years. I mean, sure, they look the same and some of them feel even older, but they're sort of constantly renewing. So you break an arm, great. Well, okay, not great, but you know, it'll get better. You chip a tooth, that is just an expensive problem that is never going to fix itself. It's because teeth grow once. Luckily for us, we have two sets, so we don't have to use the little teeny tiny teeth we're born with, but we do have just the kind of one adult set, which of course is fantastic for people who want to learn more about the human body because they lock in all of the information from when you were growing. So your teeth, you know, they were growing when you were taking in this type of water, when you were living on top of this type of geology, all the little chemical information from the food you ate and everything else you took in, the oxygen, the strontium, is locked into your teeth. And, as you said, 
Your teeth are like trees. They grow in a kind of freaky, like an onion pattern, but if you were to, say, give your teeth to me, and I highly recommend that um, you, know, you do this in an ethical and scientifically responsible way. Well, after I'm dead, perhaps. Yes, yeah, um, well, some of my research does involve uh, work on people who are not so dead, but it's their baby teeth, so um, it's very awkward trying to explain to the research department that you want a budget line called the Tooth Fairy Project. <laughs> Totally valid, totally valid scientific research. But yeah, so if you, if you were to give your teeth to someone like me, I would, um, first of all, be very grateful, but uh, I'd be able to look at the structures on your teeth and like with a tree, if you cut it down the center using a sort of a low speed, but diamond bladed saw, uh, you could saw right through the center, make a very thin polished section that's about the thickness of seven human hairs and you could stare at that intently under a microscope, and I mean really stare at it intently, but you would see rings, just like the rings of a tree. But if you were going to be cheap about it, you could cheat, and you could look at the outside of your teeth. So for anyone who has teeth, you can try this at home, it probably won't work if you've ever brushed your teeth. <laughs> so, I, I mean, on balance, I would advocate brushing your teeth, but um, the outside of your teeth actually have some of the little outgrowths of these tree rings, these little, chronological markers that are locked into our tissue and they're visible as horizontal lines on the outside of your teeth. So young kids who haven't used their teeth much, when they first get in those adult teeth, you might actually be able to see the little lines and each of those lines forms mm, about every seven days, seven to ten days. So we can actually make a schedule just by staring intently at people's teeth. Before we get to, to cities, there needs to be an an urban revolution and before the urban revolution um, there's an agricultural revolution what what we call the neolithic revolution basically and and even if people aren't familiar with that term they'll be familiar with what came before it now from like you know picking up a magazine in the in a dentist waiting room or something because the paleo diet and paleo lifestyles which is basically the lifestyles that the hunter-gatherers had before we started to invent agriculture is, is all the rage now, isn't it? Were things really that great? I think rage is the key word there. Uh, rage would be mostly what paleo diet inspires in anthropologists. That's, I, I'm a little harsh. I think that idea of a paleo lifestyle, it's a really interesting one, and I think it tells us more about us now than it does about us then. I think I have a whole bit in the book where maybe I go off a little bit, but um, I was sitting in southeastern Turkey and I was thinking about the diet we used to have. And I, was, I was actually writing about hunter-gatherer diet and thinking quite a bit about it, um, but I was sitting in just, you know, a really isolated part of southeastern Turkey. It's about two hours from the border from Syria. It's just not a lot is happening there. There are a lot of goats. And I was, I was trying to look up this sort of paleo diet thing and I, I found on the internet this paleo diet bar. And it was just, it was the most processed, you know, it had everything, um, fiber and nutrients, but had no sugar, had no joy. I think it specifically said, you know, there is no joy involved in this food whatsoever. And I just, I, I started thinking about it. I just thought, I am pretty sure no one, you know, 20,000 years ago, had a foil-wrapped bar. <laughs> so <laughs> just nobody's, no archaeologists have come across the the um, the, 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 the foil the paleo of our processing plan. <laughs> well, I think the thing that um, you know the the paleo diet is an interesting concept, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to eat better. I mean, I think we all want to eat better and probably not ruin the world while we do it. That seems like a kind of reasonable thing to want. But uh, I think a lot of people mistake paleo for really, really expensive food that's pretty raw, which is, which is a different concept. Mm -hmm. So if you were gonna eat real paleo, you know, I really hope you like porcupine. How do you feel about eating the stomach contents of a reindeer? These are paleo foods. Ground up acorns, anyone? I mean, these are actual paleo foods. And you know, the whole thing is, we have spent millions of years as little life forms trying very, very hard not to starve to death. We will eat anything. That is the great thing about humans. That's one of our best features. We would put that on our online dating profile. We'll eat anything. We are omnivorous and, um, you know, my, my phrase is we're omnivorous and we're clever with it. We come up with new ways to feed ourselves. And if that means eating a reindeer tummy, it means eating a reindeer tummy. So what I think a lot of people might not realize is um, that, you know, when we, when we study hunter-gatherers today, 
no one is in a pristine condition. There's mm -hmm. no such thing as a sort of pre-modern lifestyle. It turns out hunter-gatherers today are, are not figments of anyone's imagination. They're perfectly real people, thank you. And they don't exist totally outside their modern condition. So a lot of the hunter-gatherers that are still practicing that lifestyle are actually on the margins of where it's easy to make a living as a human. If you wanted to be a hunter-gatherer in some really prime real estate, too bad a big urban state kicked you off, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. So a lot of what we sort of think of as a, as a hunter-gatherer, like um, something like endurance running to hunt, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very impressive thing where you just outrun an animal. We may not have needed to do that in circumstances where there was more food around. So a lot of what we kind of think of as that paleo is really just a sort of, um, I, think it, I think it says more about <laughs> what we would like us to be. Also, it never mentions the honey. There's a great study about the Hansa um, in Africa who are uh, living a fairly traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle and probably one of the best studied groups. And there's a great piece of research um, that shows they get about 15% of their calories from honey, which I totally approve of. I think, you know, if, if you're gonna... If you're gonna have a limited range in your diet and some of it's going to be something awkward like, you know, small mammals, then hey, yeah, let's bump the honey content. I'm Greg Jenner, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. It's certainly true that, I mean, if not a worse diet here, when we began agriculture, we had a, a narrower diet. Possibly. I think a lot of what we know about diet is, again, us kind of reflecting on the past through the lens of the present. Mm. So it might be, and in a lot of places where you have farming or a kind of farming, you have a lot of reliance on wild or gathered foods kind of alongside stuff that's going to bump up your nutritional content. For me, I always worry that the point where you start narrowing your food options is the point where you're constrained by other things like how many other people are around you and have already eaten the fun stuff and how close you are, how much access you have to the actual sort of means of production. So if you're living in a city, it could be a lot harder to get to go out into the forest and gather up some supplies when times are hard. There's uh, certainly a lot of evidence um, from even recent times that, you know, in, in times of famine, people in the cities, they go out into the countryside because a city is not necessarily going to give you the broad spectrum. But there's, um, there is a lot to be said. People have certainly argued that agricultural diet gives you a lot of calories, yummy, yummy carbs, but it doesn't necessarily give you the variety. I would think that now we have better scientific techniques for uncovering ancient plants. We've got very good at finding things like phytoliths. It's archaeobotany is now a sort of um, very cool sort of scientific archaeology where you go and you take the tiniest, tiniest little sample out of some, you know, 10,000-year-old trash pit. And instead of just sort of going around and going, okay, well, I can see 10 cow bones and three sheep bones and that looks like a, a grassy seed head, you actually go in for the little sort of um, hard structures of plants that can survive. And you start seeing that there are other types of plants in the archaeological record. So it might be that we're just kind of waiting to rewrite that whole agricultural story. And you've excavated places, as I mentioned in, in the introduction, in, in Turkey that were right on the cusp of that, that sort of point where people started agriculture but weren't necessarily yet living in villages or like you know urban centers yeah so it's it's a sort of anatolia is a great sort of series of stories the the cradle of civilization the origin of uh, farming is all sort of something that's thought of as taking place in the fertile crescent which is basically you know down the hall and to the left it's it's um, in the levant so sort of israel jordan place like that iraq syria this is slightly further upriver and in anatolia where uh, i've done a couple bits of work they just seem to do things a little bit differently so it's a great kind of microcosm for looking at this phenomenon because they they seem to kind of pick up some, some new habits like agriculture and domestication of animals, and they do it in sort of their own particular way. So Chatelhoyuk is a site that a lot of people have heard of. It's very famous. It's been excavated by a series of archaeologists, but since the 60s, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And um, I got the opportunity to work there one summer, and it was fantastic. And Sounds I mean, like it's just parties constantly. You know, and, and the book does probably relate to many of these parties. I feel like... I, Gossipy footnotes. That's that's kind of what we went for in the book. Um, there, 
There's an unresolved real estate issue that I cover in the book that people are welcome to work out who that's about. But uh, yeah, so Chattelhoek is this amazing place and actually it's brought together at peak season. There are 125 archeologists on site. This is enormous. This is a lot of archeological egos in one small place. But um, you know, some of, some of the most interesting sort of uh, boundary pushing interpretations and they've been digging for well over 20 years, and it's just a fascinating site that's right at that boundary of the beginning of agriculture, and it's kind of, it's basically a sort of world of mud brick walled houses, all clustered together. They did not seem to go in for roads. Roads were not a thing. They really enjoyed the idea of roofs being roads. So why have spaces between your houses that you could walk through? Those are great for keeping trash in you could just walk across, um, which is something that I, I did once see hilariously reenacted, but not, not a good end. Uh, and the other side I've worked at is Shiklohoyuk, which I like to think of as kind of the hipster version of Shiklohoyuk. It's about a thousand years earlier, and it really covers that transition, the before period. So it's, it's quite close to a, a site called Musalar, which is where they did a lot of feasting. So imagine you know, a site where people are coming together. They're not maybe living there permanently, but they're, they're bringing their big animals, their party hats, you know, the, this is where people are coming together to organize. And then kind of across the river and down a ways is a Shiklohoyuk. And a Shiklohoyuk is very interesting because we start to see um, sort of evidence for agriculture. We also start to see the beginnings of domestication of animals. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is one of the things that people have suggested for a long time was not a great idea because you really should not live that close to animals. Uh, we'll, we'll get on to diseases and things that, that come from domestication of animals a bit, a bit later on in the interview. But then um, actually... Tell us about an another site that you visit, um, Antikythera, which is um, the, one of the, the Greek islands, which um, regular listeners of Little Atoms will have heard in an interview long ago about the Antikythera mechanism, uh, ancient computer. But um, goats. You know, uh, goats are pretty much the predominant feature of my career. Uh, I do not study them. Um, I generally don't even eat them, uh, but sometimes you have to. And goats are everywhere. I mean, you cannot dig or survey or do any sort of research without goats cropping up. So Antikythera is this fabulous little place. It's just the most bizarre island. It sits on the Straits of Kithra. The Straits of Kithra are a terrible place to put a boat through because it is rocky and windy and very difficult, but it's a great place to get your shipping from the east to the west. So coming from the Levant and all the goods of the sort of Orient and moving them to the capitals of the west, especially the big trading empires like Venice and Rome. And it's also, so it turns out, Antikythera being a tiny, tiny rock stuck up in the middle of the sea is a great place to put a pirate fort. It's also a good place, apparently, to leave some goats. So there's an argument that uh, this island, which, by the way, the population is now something about 42 individuals. They, they got, uh, I think, the, the electricity came in 86 and roads in 85 or vice versa. And for a long time, they only had a mile of roads. It was unclear what the road was specifically for, but um, they did get a road, so there is that. Uh, so this island is this tiny little rock in the middle of the sea, and it is just dominated by goats. So you've got about 42 people, and the, the ratio of goats to humans is like 350 to one. At one point, there were you know thousands of goats roaming these islands. And because the, our work there was actually to go over the surface of the island and kind of stare blankly at the ground, which is something that archaeologists do and mm -hmm. consider valid, uh, you walk in a very straight line under very, very hot Mediterranean sun with limited resources in tins. It helps, it turns out, if you take the labels off of the tins because then um, nobody knows which tin is the good tin and people fight less in the morning. But so you, you set off in these straight lines and you walk very seriously and what you're doing is surveying and looking at the ground to see what kind of pottery and other finds are there to sort of map out how people have lived, which was the real point. But what we found was mostly goats. And they, you know, there are goats on the ridgeline watching you. There are goats coming out of the abandoned village doing creepy goat things. I mean, it is, there are goats everywhere. But goats are one of the things that um, I've had to think out about a lot. And the reason they end up in this book about cities, because Antikythera is about as far from a city as you could get, is that they're, they're actually kind of, um, they're part of a human story of sort of domestication. 
and then non-domestication. So what we think of when we think of sort of um, taking in animals and, and this whole uh, revolutionary idea, they call it the secondary products revolution once we learn how to make cheese and, you know, coats out of them. So it's another one of those revolutions to add. Uh, but, but basically that these goats are Antikythrin goats, are once domesticated goats. All of these goats that are um, terrifyingly wild-looking and deeply ominous with their giant horns and their shaggy fur, these are goats that only sort of, you know, probably about 10 goaty generations ago were nice little milking goats. They were managed goats. But when Antikythera was cleared off by the Nazis in the Second World War and all the farms went fallow and all of the herd management sort of went to hell, uh, these goats went wild. And so it's, it's a sort of interesting interplay about how we, we think about how humans have domesticated animals because we've struggled a lot to figure out how did this happen? We've tried to use DNA to sort of pick out when did we domesticate cows, when did we domesticate pigs, and it turns out well, we keep on breeding them with kind of wild types. We, we mess this up terribly. <laughs> it's, it's a confusing story. Do their ears all go pointy? I think these goats do, in fact, have floppy ears. And um, you must have heard this before, but Darwin has a, come up with how to spot a domesticated animal, and it's floppy ears. Floppy ears and a curly tail. And that's... that's Ha, ha, ha. You know, that's the eureka moment. Though I think, um, you know, chickens. Floppy ears? Yeah, yeah. Doesn't work for everything. But it certainly works for dogs. It so let's talk about the history of domestication of dogs alongside... Because this is something that obviously happened a long time before we started settling down in urban areas. And like the goats, uh, the dogs probably came and went. So uh, there's, there's a lot of... Um, this is where uh, archaeogenetics... A DNA, ancient DNA, has really come in and basically taken a very simple story and made it ridiculously complicated. So um, we thought, okay, dogs, uh, they, they show up, they're domesticated, they seem to look different. So I've got a diagram in the book, which I'm very impressed by. I did not draw it. Draw it. That was someone with actual skill. But, um, you know, a, a dog looks a little bit like a puppy of a wolf. They haven't got quite the same sort of heavy, ferocious skulls that, um, you know, a, an actual wolf does. So, so they've been sort of bred into a slightly different shape. So archaeologists can use those skull shapes to pick out which ones are likely to have been domesticated and sort of dog-like versus... So, so that one with the big underbite in the, in the book doesn't look particularly Oh, yeah, no, our, our poor bulldog friend. Um, yeah, well, it's probably scary if you met him in a dark alley. Uh, but, you know, he drooled on you a bit. That's, uh... Yeah, he's, he's, he's come some way from his wild wolf ancestors. But uh, we don't know which wild wolf ancestors any of our dogs had. It's entirely likely that we had multiple different domestications that worked and didn't work. There's um, some dog-like skulls in Belgium that I think are 30,000 years old, and they're not related to any of our modern dogs. So whatever lineage they were part of never even interacted with the lineage that our sort of modern dogs are from. So there's probably multiple different dog domestication incidents because, I mean, who wouldn't want a puppy? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Brenna Hassett and we're talking about her book Built on Bones, 15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death. And Brenna, in this second part, I want to start off talking about violence. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, yeah, indeed. Um, so you talk about, we'll go through the various forms of violence that you talk about in the book. But like, first of all, in, in the first part of the game, we were talking about you know, the uh, Paleolithic people, hunter-gatherers, and you know, there's developed this idea probably came about in the 1960s, not coincidentally, um, that they were sort of like proto-hippies and they were all really nice and things only really went wrong when urbanisation started. And I'm particularly talking about violence here. So I want to spend some time talking about another group of people that you studied in the past, the Shumash of California, who have interesting skulls. Yes. Um, so I have to. I have to say that um, I never got to study the skulls directly. This was a deeply held aspiration. But my early life uh, was in reasonable proximity to Chumash territory. So I did my undergrad at UCLA. So I mean, tragedy among tragedies. For our fieldwork class, we had to go to Malibu. Oh, it was terrible. You know, it was just such a hardship. Uh, to be fair, you know. <laughs> At, at like 18 years old, driving up to Malibu at 5 a.m. through traffic. No, that's, that is actually terrible. But um, so um, the first site I ever worked on was a Chumash site, which was just an amazing experience. Uh, we, we did get to excavate an entire windscreen of an RV, which, which was not an expected find, but um, had been buried on the campsite. So there you go. But so I, I, a lot of the researchers at UCLA had studied the Chumash, so we, we read about them and learned a lot about them. And one of the, the first physical anthropology or bioarchaeology papers that I read was uh, by Phil Walker, who was actually at the university just up the road, also in Chumash territory, and he worked a lot with the Chumash. He was really um, a sort of uh, excellent researcher, sadly passed away. But uh, it, one of his papers was on depressed skull fractures in the Chumash. And he describes these groups as having quite a lot of basically knocks to the head. So as a bioarchaeologist, I can stare at your skull, flesh removed please, and see evidence that you've once been smacked in the head because your bone, while it knits back together, like we sort of talked about before, doesn't always knit back together right. That is what we rely on to see evidence of violence. If we can't see the break, you know, if you healed your bone too well, we're kind of in trouble. We, we won't be able to see it as archaeologists. But um, turns out when you bash someone upside the head, it does tend to leave a dent. Especially, you know, if they, if they survive it, it can sort of smooth over. So he wrote about some skulls that had quite a few depressed skull fractures. And one of the things I thought was so interesting was there's a story of another group, not the Chumash, slightly further north, up in sort of San Francisco area, who had a specific type of ritual agreement settling, which basically involved, and this is recorded by two very judgy um, Spanish sort of missionaries, but they, they sort of, they say, well, these people, these people, you know, they, they go and when they have an argument, two of them face off and they both have uh, in their hands uh, a, a sort of cudgel. They say a spatula. Spatula is an instrument of conflict seems unlikely. I, I think what they sort of mean is something like a, a sweat scraper, like a Roman strigil or whatever. The, the, so it's a long stick. Uh, and whoever has the grievance smacks the other party upon the head and the other person retaliates and whoever draws first blood is right. And I just, I think in conjunction with the evidence of all of these depressed skull fractures, it was such an interesting story, a sort of a direct link between some sort of observed behavior. And, and one of the interesting things about that observed behavior is that all the people along the sort of coastline, sort of prehistorically, 
have very interesting ways of life. They're kind of hunter-gatherers, but they're actually hunting and gathering from the sea. So they tend to stay in one place. They're not roaming savannas. They're hanging out in Malibu or San Francisco or wherever it is. And they're kind of contesting that territory. That, you know, if you're going to hunt abalone, you need to cling on at least as tight as the abalone. Otherwise, some other person's going to come and get your abalone. So we see these kind of depressed skull fractures. And one of the things that um, people have interpreted them as, as kind of sign of conflict, that, you know, this is when you start to see more bumps on the head, it's because people have grievances that they've got to settle, not necessarily with spatulas. So that's a, an example of one-on-one violence, violence between individuals. And you move on to look at more systematic violence, violence against groups of people, be that, you know, from a king or a government downwards towards the people, or you look at systematic abuse against children and women. And you also in this chapter look at evidence of sacrifice, human sacrifice of various forms. But I wanted to look at a particular, particularly interesting example that's quite contested, which really goes back a long way to a homo antecessor, oh, which, right. which is these um, possibly evidence of ritualised cannibalism in an extremely old human ancestor. Well, so first we'll think about the word antecessor. Decide if that's really the word we want to use. Um, I deliberately stay out of sort of uh, anything that has to do with the nomenclature of early hominins. Um, having done my time in the anthropology department at the Natural History Museum, I realize that I know just enough to know nothing about hominins. Uh, I'm now concerned that most people know nothing about hominins, including many researchers, so this is always contentious. But um, yes, so these bones with, um, that have been picked clean They've essentially got butchery marks on them. And that's the thing that people are really interested in. So for an archaeologist, you get a zooarchaeologist who looks at animal bones. Um, you get a sort of osteoarchaeologist or a you know, physical anthropologist who looks at the human bones. And we, we see different bits of evidence in the skeleton. If you've got an ice pick through your head, that's a fairly human sign of, you know, that there was a kill that was probably rage-induced and possibly has something to do with, um, you know, films of the early 90s. But um, the sort of marks that we find in an animal bone, people are unlikely to be so angry at an animal or have a sort of social contract with an animal that means they ice pick them. They're probably killing them for food. So we look at the marks on animal bones, cut marks where the big meat is, uh, big slices and chops near where the joints are, where you would have to separate uh, you know, the limb from the torso. There's a series of, you know, any trained butcher can show you there's a good way to cut up an animal. And we, you know, in most past human societies, people would have been doing this for themselves and would probably know the best way. So there are certain types of cut marks that tell us this is being consumed for food. The other thing that we can also see is smashed up bones for, for people who are into the sort of new trend for bone marrow soup and things like this. Marrow is inside the bone. You must crack it, smash it, or do something, you know, otherwise do something to get at the inside. So when we run into a pile of bones, that have cut marks where the big muscles are, chop marks where the limbs are, and the bones are smashed open for marrow, the thought there is dinner. Now, when you see it on human remains, the big question is, dinner? <laughs> this is, and this has driven people crazy. So for a long time, there was an argument that cannibalism just wasn't a thing. This was something that nasty colonial elites accused other people, usually browner, subjugated people, of doing as a way of kind of othering them, as a way of making them less than human. They eat people. Worst thing you can say about anyone. I mean, you don't want to go to a dinner party with that guy. And, and slowly, slowly, actually, people start piling up evidence that Actually, you know, long pick might be a thing. Um, that there does seem to be a lot of evidence for cannibalism at various different places. Various different places. I mean, I saw the movie Alive, which was a traumatic early life experience. <laughs> I, you know, uh, these things do happen, and whether it's ritual or um, you know, you happen to be in a South American football team that's stranded in the Andes, and you know, because of a tragic plane crash. There are a variety of reasons. So when we get back to the sort of deep past, it's hard to know what the reasons are. And it's even harder to attribute a motive that's like our kind of desire to go and conquer things and, you know, claim a flag or a castle or kick down a sandcastle, whatever it is that we want, with the kind of um, just competition 
between various groups uh, that we see in, in pretty much all animals. So you, you definitely get primates who eat other primates. You get primates that eat their same species of primates. Um, I think I, I pretty much say terrible things about chimps all through the book. That is because chimps are terrible. <laughs> They're violent <laughs> and terrifying. So with those remains, I know it's certainly been contested, and I, I would say that um, I have never seen them myself, and uh, I would, I'm not sure I would know if I did. But I think that the jury is kind of firmly down on the they were eaten by people who could wield tools sign. Whether it was out of spite or not, We'll be talking about, you know, ideas of formalised violence of one group against another, and, you know, this can obviously be on a huge scale. Clearly, the, you know, the Holocaust is a form of organised violence of one group against another, or, or what happened in Rwanda was clearly organised, but at the same time was mainly carried out by thousands and thousands and thousands of people with essentially farming equipment, machetes and things. So I want to talk about war... What do we mean by war? And when did we, when do we first see evidence in the bones of like a formalized thing that we can actually call a war? I think so. This is, this is a complicated question. And um, you can define war, it turns out, just about any way you want, uh, as, as long as you're prepared to sort of run fleeing into the hills when the rest of the academics come for you. But um, so, so war in a kind of anthropological concept well, it's, it's a loose and sort of uh, fluffy meaning. But if you want to talk about the sort of war where it's, it's kind of a specialized type of thing, the reason for war is to acquire something to sort of, um, you know, the logical extension of politics, or I'm misquoting Clausewitz uh, somewhere there. But um, there's, there's a fantastic, it turns out, yeah, the continuation of politics by other means. That's war. Though I think he actually said policy because it's the same word in German, which is why... <laughs> German is difficult. So, so this idea that it's, it's sort of serving a political end war, that is hard to unpick because you... So we can see way back in the Neolithic, so a world before cities, we see entire communities squash like bugs. And they, they take up, um, you know, the farm implements, these, these sort of agricultural adzes and things. And these are clearly the weapons that are being used to smash the skulls. Um, Germany and Austria seem to have had a really rough Neolithic. There's a lot of very interesting information on mass graves that are essentially uh, men, women, and children who are all killed simultaneously and quite violently and really pretty unpleasantly. Now, I mean, is that a war or is that uh, just community conflict? Uh, is that, you know, an unfortunate series of events? Uh, a lot of people would say that that kind of organized violence where you kill an entire community is war. But I think what a lot of people really think of is when someone has the power to send a bunch of other people off to do this, when someone's really got professional kind of standing capacity. It's not just raiding on a Tuesday. Hey, guys, we all get together on Tuesdays. This is our raiding day. It's a proper sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, the capacity for military conflict because you've got a military. Yeah, you've got an army. You've got an army. That's their job. Here's special spiky poking things for killing people with, not the same thing that you... Yeah, no, well, and, I mean, with. everybody loves special spiky pokey things. I mean, that is, that is a big obsession. So a lot of the earliest um, sort of proper... I think the first proper standing military stuff we know about is Mesopotamian. And there, there are some uh, early documents which basically give the numbers of men who are paid to be soldiers in an army. It's almost certainly after the first real state-to-state -state conflicts. But of course, you know, the way we talk about war is, you know, the way we talk about war is because we are a bunch of urban nation-states who are not that far removed from our city-state sort of origins. But the way we think about war is states going to war against other states. We don't think about the kind of asymmetrical conflicts and things like that. Maybe we do now because sort of global political situation. But the way we've understood war in the past has a lot more to do with, you know, 18th, 17th century concepts of what it means to fight than uh, possibly what it did at the time. And also, once people start living together, whether that's in cities or if you've been brought up as a child in the UK, you've probably been taken on a rainy Sunday to visit a Bronze Age hill fort and like, everybody's 
heard of you know the walls of Jericho or whatever. So it's it's easy to imagine that these were fortifications to keep marauding armies out, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? Yeah, no, and there's actually, there's, um, it was a man who was studying uh, Hilfworts who was fascinated by this idea. It's a guy called Lawrence Keeley, and he, he wrote a very good book. And he sort of talks about these fortifications. He, he's sort of writing about just sort of in retaliation to a time when you couldn't really talk about war in archaeology because it was seen as quite old-fashioned, quite paternalistic, quite, you know, sort of um, misogynist almost, this, this obsession with war and conflict. And, and someone has called it the um, yogurt crocheting zenith of the theoretical aspects of archaeology, which is pretty much accurate. But uh, so Lawrence Keeley, he looked at these fortifications and having been kind of schooled in this idea that actually, um, you know, a fort isn't always a fort. A fort can be a place to impress your friends. A fort can be a place to keep your cows. Uh, a fort can be, you know, a community gathering space and all these other sort of social functions that weren't war. But then you, you sort of start digging them and those are very big walls, you know, to protect against cows. They, cows are not good at sieges. They are terrible at sieges. So uh, it's kind of one of these things where people have now gone back towards, actually, some of these things may well have been defensive in function. It's not just, no, not everyone builds a wall just for sort of aesthetic effect. Jericho, however, there is still an argument that it's basically kept flooding. <laughs> so the walls of Jericho may still remain confusing for all of us. I'm Irving Finkel, and you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned uh, von Clausewitz and his, uh, his famous aphorism earlier on, and indeed another philosopher, another famous philosopher once said, which indeed you use as a chapter title in this book, War, What Is It Good For? And um, one of the things it's good for is spreading diseases... So I want to spend probably the last part of the show talking about a few of these diseases, some diseases that are zoonotic, some not, that were endemic in humans anyway. Um, But basically how you can see these diseases in the bones, basically, in the remains that you're you're digging up. And we'll look at two or three of them that you cover in the book. But let's start with leprosy. Oh, everybody loves a leper. Nobody loves a leper. Absolutely no one loves a leper, except for bioarchaeologists. So leprosy, it turns out, is a very slow disease. Uh, one of the problems with the bioarchaeology of disease is that if it kills you quick, it's not going to change your bones. It takes a lot of time. It takes a really long-standing infection to have an effect on your bones. We talked about that kind of slow renewal of, you know, each individual little cell sort of in the same action that knits your bones back together is the same action that responds to infection and changes the shape of your bones so that we can see it. Leprosy, kindly, does affect the bone. So it's one of, it's a subject of considerable fascination. And the, the problem with leprosy is obviously that, um, well, it's not fun to have your feet and toes fall off, but it's a disease that uh, really makes a huge mark because people think of it as this sort of massive, disfiguring, horrific condition. We do know that actually lepers may not have been as shunned as previously thought. And if you look at leprosy, which is a modern disease, which does certainly still affect people, there are people living in the world, uh, you know, who, who've had leprosy for 20 years, 30 years. They still live with family members who have never caught it. Um, it's, it's actually hard to get leprosy. I think there was tragically underappreciated episode where uh, Che Guevara went and volunteered at a leprosy hospital briefly. That didn't directly contribute to his demise. But, um, so leprosy is something that we can see um, through a series of characteristic changes in the bone. And these changes in the bone actually happen not necessarily because of the direct infection of the leprosy bacteria into the bone, but because the leprosy kills off your nerves. When you start to lose your peripheral nervous system, you start to lose feeling. One of the places you lose feeling is in the periphery, i.e. your feet. Your feet are then liable to sort of stumble over things, to sort of not step properly, to get cuts, to get scratches. And when they get cuts and scratches and there's sort of no nerve connection left, that's when you get trouble, you get secondary infections. So the sort of rotting appendages 
that we, we so love in our televisual sort of representation of the leper are actually kind of not leprosy's fault. Okay, they're leprosy's fault. They are totally leprosy's fault. But they are the result of secondary infections most of the time. Well, let's talk then about perhaps a disease or a group of diseases. I'm going to say plague, which doesn't really mean anything. Um, but, you know, the plague is a thing that obviously kills people incredibly rapidly, doesn't have time to enact on the bones in any way. And yet, if you were on a dig and you dug down and you... There's a way of telling whether somebody died of plague. Well, uh, the, the best way is to get at the DNA. And this is something we've become incredibly good at. And this is a revolution. I mean, really, the last decade, we couldn't do this before. We did not know what plague was, you know, which one was Athens, which one was Justinian, which one was, you know, 1348. We, we had ideas. Some of them were crazy. But we had ideas, but we, we didn't know. And actually, so ADNA has opened up a whole new world and shut down some other ones. But for the archaeologist, um, especially the one who does not have the fancy ADNA budget, uh, the, the first sign that something has gone wrong is that you have a massive pit of dead people. That is definitely a sign that something has gone wrong. So one of the things we actually look at in archaeology is an overall picture of the dead people. And it turns out it's not very normal to die in the middle of your life. Life is very risky for old people and babies. Before modern medicine, these are the times you were most likely to die. You sort of gray out of existence, or you know you just didn't quite make it. That first year is a big dangerous one, pre-modern. Uh, so normally in the cemetery, you might find quite a range of individuals, but you would, you would get a sort of curve that slopes up at the baby end and slopes up at the old people end. You get a massive pit full of dead people who are all ages, all genders, and you start to think, well, that's not normal. So what we see is something called a catastrophic assemblage, because that's a fun word. And so that's when we start to think about epidemics. And eventually, you know, if, if you've got that many bodies in a pit, someone's going to have to explain it. OK, just one more then. I want to finish up, as many people do, on syphilis. And specifically because this brings us back to teeth. I was totally unaware of this thing called mulberry teeth. Yes, so um, as, as Robert Benon, who is the dentist to the ladies of the French court, uh, put it eloquently, the teeth of the children hide the evil secrets of the mothers and fathers. So syphilis is a nasty little disease, and not only can you acquire it venereally, uh, you can actually be born with it. And one of the things that this dentist noticed, because he spent a lot of time in a hospital for women of a certain type, indigent women in Paris, he spent a lot of time there for reasons, um, he noticed that the babies that were born to these women, many of whom were prostitutes, and many of whom had syphilis, venereal syphilis, they had a specific appearance. So the baby teeth had little notches, uh, little half-moon notches out of the front two top teeth, and the back chewing teeth had sort of a mulberry look. They basically, um, instead of having the sort of four bumps that you might expect, they had lots and lots of little bumps. And so this allowed um, Bunyan to sort of, ha-ha, I see what you've been doing. But syphilis actually um, affects the bones as well, and especially um, some of the more outrageous symptoms that we see in skeletons would have been fairly horrific in life. Syphilis takes a long time to kill you. Most of the time, uh, if you had syphilis in, say, the 18th century, something else was going to get you first. Uh, but it could have pretty devastating consequences. So third-stage syphilis is when it really gets into your bones. And then you have all sorts of infections, but the one that's really typical are lesions on your head. And these, these are pretty horrific. They basically look like someone has chewed up a bunch of gum and stuck it to your skull. And it is not nice. It is not nice. Um, but it's probably, you may not care at that point, because that's probably around when you get neurosyphilis and you're, you're a little bit, you're gone. Of course, the problem was they tried to cure it with mercury. So there's the whole idea that a night with Venus, a lifetime with mercury. Mercury does not cure syphilis. I'd like to put that out there right now. It is a terrible idea. Do not yeah, don't pour try that at home. <laughs> Do not pour mercury on your head. That is not going to help. But it's it's unclear in a lot of cases whether mercury poisoning or syphilis would have killed some of these sort of uh, early modern patients. But yes, yeah, syphilis, another one of these diseases brought to you by cities, sponsored by cities, carried through cities. I think that's a, a good point for us to finish talking about built-on bones. But before we finish, tell us something about 
Trailblazers, the, the projects that you're a quarter of. So who are the other people? What's it for? Right, yes. So Trailblazers is um, a strange little project that took on a life of its own. Didn't really mean to be a thing. It was for early career researchers. We've got um, a paleontologist and three archaeologists. One is myself. Um, the other archaeologists are Susan Pilar-Birch. Then there's Becky Rag Sykes, and our paleontologist is Tori Herridge. And we, we got together to get angry about things on the internet, because that's what the internet is for. We enjoyed that, and we were, we were pretty much angry about the same things. And, and the thing we really noticed was we knew so many amazing, just kick-ass women in our various disciplines, but no one else seemed to have ever heard of them. These women who'd worked in sort of Victorian period or the early you know, 19th century, and you just thought... God, this woman was climbing pyramids in her underwear. That's dedication. Especially, you know, when you know, bloomers were a thing. Um, so we, there were all these cool stories, and we felt like no one knew them. So we, we just started a little website and started putting up biographies of these women. And they're from all the earth sciences, so geology, paleontology, archaeology. And uh, we just started collecting them, and it's been amazing. So we've, we've sort of tried to take that fascination with basically cool ladies digging stuff in hats, which is, that's our main point. Um, but, but kind of add to it a little bit, this history of women working in fields where it's not so common to have women working in fields, and the story of how they managed to do this, how, how Victorian or Georgian women managed to sort of have careers and have impacts on these scientific fields, is one that's kind of relevant to today. It's, it's you know, women still struggle in a lot of scientific subjects in terms of professional representation, mentorship, retention in the field, you know, people fall out. So we're, we're trying to sort of take it to a helpful place. In the meantime, we make dolls and photographic exhibitions and generally have an excellent time. So I've been talking to Brenna Hassett. We've been talking about her book, Built on Bones, 15,000 Years of Urban Life and Death, which is out now from Bloomsbury Sigma. Brenna, thank you very much for coming in and telling me about it. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.